Hello and welcome along again to the Northern Agenda podcast, your weekly look at what's making waves in politics in the towns, cities, suburbs and villages of the proud north of England. I'm Rob Parsons, a journalist based in Leeds who follows the ups and downs of regional politics in our region and I try and make sense of it every day with an email newsletter called the Northern Agenda. This podcast is my once a week chance to take a deeper look at some of the big issues in the north and speak to people in the know for their insights and expertise. If you like the podcast, why not leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts as it helps us reach more people across the north. Last week, I had a close look at what's going on in Sunderland. Today, we're heading 130 miles southwest over the northern Pennines to the Lancashire city of Preston. I'm here for the This is the North Convention 2023, organised by the People's Powerhouse, a movement that aims to bring people of the North together to discuss, explore, share and celebrate all the amazing grassroots organisations in our region. The venue for the two-day conference is the Masonic Hall in Preston, a building which dates originally back to the 1830s and where, as I look around, I can see wood-panelled rooms with names like the Tuscan Room and leather-bound chairs. It's easy to imagine the great and good of Lancashire society over the years spending time here. I suspect the members of the local Freemasons may not have been totally on board with some of the topics on the agenda this week, as the theme is A Radical North, The People-Powered Future Starts Here. And even the location here in Preston is a contrast to the venue for the conference last year, Central Manchester, where skyscrapers are leaping up in all directions and the city's leaders have enthusiastically embraced big business. The political leadership here in Preston is plotting a very different course, as we'll hear later. My aim while in Preston is to highlight some of the voices we don't always hear in discussions about the North. So let's make a start by talking to one of the organisers. So I am with Edna Robinson, the chair of the People's Powerhouse, which is a, for people who don't know, is a movement that brings together people of the North to discuss, explore, share and celebrate all the amazing grassroots organisations in the North of England. Um, Edna, how is the convention going for you so far? Uh, thanks. Uh, it's great. Um, a great. Uh, we've gone for two days this time rather than a day. Um, a little bit of a, a punt because we don't know whether people will do the two full days. But we think we've got a really interesting programme, so we'll see people come and go. And, uh, yeah, we're delighted to be in Preston. Feels like an energetic place with a lot of good ideas we've been made very welcome and as ever the council are keen to have these debates about wider civic growth the involvement with their communities so we're yeah we're very happy to be here and we're going to hear from uh, Matthew Brown the uh, leader of Preston Council a little bit later but can you just tell us about what this year's convention is sort of focused on um what's what's the main focus of it this year I think because we came to Preston and we know how uh, well established they are in the debate about um, wealth growth, um, economic growth and their model, the famous Preston model, um, it was inevitable that we'd want to talk about economics and how we look at social value and growing community ownership. So that's kind of the main focus. But as ever, the people's powerhouse is what it says on the tin. It's about the people who come. And we really want people just to connect with each other, to go away more energised and committed to be doing whatever they are doing better uh, and more enthusiastically. 
I thought it was interesting that you've moved from uh, Manchester, where you held last year's convention, to uh, Preston this year. And we've been hearing in the convention so far that you know the, when people talk about areas that are succeeding in the north, if you're from outside the north, I would imagine you would think of Manchester as being the sort of epitome of northern success and if you go to the city centre you see the gleaming skyscrapers I think I saw a a story this week about how there's going to be two new skyscrapers that will be among the tallest in Europe which will be in Manchester city centre so they've got a very distinct model of growth in Manchester but actually what we've been hearing is that that model of growth doesn't benefit many people who live in Manchester and around it and actually there are places like Preston which we'll hear a bit more about later doing things differently so was that a very sort of uh, I guess is it your view that there there's more the Manchester model is not necessarily the one that everywhere needs to be adopting I think that it's a really tricky one because I don't think it's binary. I I do believe that it's important to have um, very big and ambitious infrastructure in cities and places that are slightly futuristic in their sense of uh, the culture that they create, that they attract young single people as well as couples and families. So... It's not none of these discussions that we have are ever about you know um, presenting one system against another. We're just trying to bring out the best value of the way that we grow our society. And I'm I'm kind of very very proud of Manchester, and I think that the Manchester skyline is okay. I mean, I'd like the investments to be from people that we know, maybe rather than some distant shore. Um, but it, we do want to see that the economic investment then benefits the majority of local people. Uh, so we haven't moved away from Manchester. I mean, before that we were in Sunderland. Before that we've been in Bradford. You know, we every year we go to a different place. So um, we're just really doing the rounds and who knows where we'll be next year. But um, I feel very positive about the culture that we're creating here today, which is about a grounded discussion about economic benefit and who benefits from investment it feels like the conversation that we're having about you know converse, uh, about community wealth building and ensuring that communities are involved in uh, economic growth is quite distant from the politics that we hear about on the news i mean it, it, and you don't hear much of the kind of things that we're talking about being debated at westminster i i i don't think i mean do, do you think there's a bit of a disconnect between sort of the politics that we hear about at grassroots level like today and the sort of political debate that maybe people will hear about on on the news that happens sort of in 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 the corridors of power yeah, well, I mean, I think we, you know, there's always the tension about international politics and international issues, and then local issues. Uh, I think the disconnect is people not necessarily hearing their life experiences being represented on the mouths of politicians, so they're thinking. I don't know why they're talking about that because it doesn't really benefit me or help me. So for me, there's 
there's a need to bring back the relevance into politics so people can hear their day-to-day life experiences being more empathetically described and also less combative between combative between the two uh, between the main political parties i think that there's an over politicking of life now and we kind of need to pull it back into what is our civic life what is our civic society how do we want to nurture our our children going forward and have less about hard edge politics party politics well it's going to be a lively two days of uh, debate and discussion so edna thank you So I am now talking to Matthew Brown, the leader of Preston Council. We've been hearing a lot already at this convention about the Preston model. Um, And so Matthew, I think, is the perfect person to explain what that is. I I mean, is it oversimplifying it to say the Preston model is all about procurement, the way that public bodies spend their money and who they spend it on? I think that's a big part of it, but that's just one aspect of many things we're doing. Uh, There are five pillars. For us to deliver the transformation we feel we need to do because of the inequalities we face within our community, we really want to put uh, different layers of uh, obviously progressive procurement, but raising wages, encouraging trade union recognition, looking at different forms of ownership, what we do with our assets, redirected spending, you know, establishing alternative uh, models of ownership, really. So it's putting them all together, really, and we're making a lot of progress in Preston. And what we have learned, which is really important because we've been at this for some time, is that you've really got to work with the community and local businesses and unions and faith organisations. And when you start doing that, then obviously they work with the council and its partners to deliver a lot of this. And for me, that is what's exciting, how this is now becoming a grassroots movement, how other people are becoming leaders, as well as the local politicians like myself. Can you give us just a couple of examples of tangible things that have happened as a result of the Preston model? Without a doubt, yes. I mean, for example, we were the first uh, living wage employer accredited, not council, in the north of England, 2012. We worked very strongly and have done with our anchor partners, uh, the big institutions and local employers and voluntary organisations, local businesses. So, you know, out of a um, a working population of around 60,000, there's been at least 4,100 who've had a pay rise to what will now be £12 an hour. So that has a tangible difference. We've worked with our institutions like the NHS to use publicly owned land to deliver new affordable homes. So again, we're the best council out of 14 for um, for areas that deliver new affordable and social housing that has a big in- impact as well the mental health is a lot better because people have jobs and just by moving away from a, an exclusive mindset that we had 10 or 15 years ago before we took control around you know we've got to work with bigger businesses larger developers often extract wealth obviously we do welcome in with investment but it must be complementary to what we want to do in terms of delivering an economy that works for everyone moving away from that you just see how our publicly owned cinema will have 340 jobs how the museum that we're regenerating with a local supplier uh, that's seen, I think, 280-odd people work with Insight and over 50% of local companies involved. And then we've got new cooperatives, new community land trusts. We've in-source services as well. We're setting, looking to set up a, a council-run broadband service offering free and low-cost Wi-Fi. 
So you put that together and what you're developing is an economy that's democratic, is fairer, but it's also more resilient. So if we do get a, an economic shock or a cost of living crisis, because this is all in place and it's benefiting all our diverse communities here a lot more, then we can actually weather the storm a lot better. And what is even more exciting than this is I've been at this for some years, is how there's other areas of the UK that are delivering community wealth building or aspects of it to the same degree, but how this is an international movement, how you get in democratic cities like Chicago that are saying we've got to look at the ownership of the economy to deal with the huge racial injustice that you get there in terms of economic outcomes. And even President Biden has mentioned community wealth building recently uh, in one or two of his White House press releases. So you're seeing an international movement that's saying we've got to really look at um, who owns the stuff and who benefits from where, you know, where money goes in our communities and making sure that everyone in our communities can benefit instead of you know, the top 1%. Now, there was a University of Liverpool study uh, that was out uh, a little while ago, which uh, seemed to suggest that what you're doing is working, that uh, employment rates are up, mental health has improved among the the local citizenship. But I know there are, you know, your political opponents in Preston say, well, some of these improvements would have happened anyway. And actually, it's more, we should be looking at things like the role of the university in Preston and the big employers like BAE, they're actually, they could be just as much a part of why these changes are happening. I mean, what would you, what would you say to that? Well, I understand the view, and obviously the, the whole idea of a political opponent is to take seats off us at the council elections, so they're not going to welcome it with open arms and say it's a brilliant thing, aren't they? But, I mean, I just look at the evidence. Obviously, what you're saying is correct. Obviously, we do need the likes of British Aerospace, and obviously the university is a brilliant anchor partner. They have spent a lot more locally. They've worked with us to become uh, to pay the real living wage. They've supported expanding cooperatives. So we've collaborated with them, and they've learned from us, and we've learned from them. So it's a, it's a collaborative approach that's made this change. All I'm saying is these are political choices. We took the decision to uh, you know ask developers to provide at least thirty percent affordable homes and you know work with not for profit housing associations as much as private developers to deliver new affordable homes. We took the decision to go through the, the books and spend a lot more with locally based businesses, food, construction, other things. You know we took the decision to raise wage levels and encourage partners to do so and these were political choices now what we're having is success and obviously political opponents aren't going to acknowledge success when it comes from a, 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 an opposition party they're trying to dislodge I would just say that the study that was in the Lancet which is quite a highly respected publication it's really common sense and it was done by uh, quite a respected professor and a number of academics and it was independently verified and based around evidence around the things we have done obviously some of these things may happen without our you know input but i think the majority of the improvements we are seeing is related to the decisions we've taken and you said during your presentation earlier that it's uh, i think you described it as a hard slog i mean i guess no change that's worth having comes easily does it but it, it this is not something that is will necessarily sort of bear overnight fruit it's something that people will have to be a bit patient with in order to to see the to see the benefits of it yes i mean this is the i mean it's obviously i'm a labor politician and the conservative government since the started in the late 70s in my opinion they have uh, chosen to restrict uh, local government and regional government uh, to make us one of the most you know centralized countries in 
the former European Union were part of. And that is done because local government did actually, it was the main house build, it would bring about real positive economic changes. So that is why it's a real hard slog. And also the economic mindset. I mean, people are just struggling to get by from day to day. They're not thinking about economic models and the rest of it. And this is why we are actually working in communities, especially the working class communities, to actually make them aware of these alternatives. Because, for example, a lot in our South Asian community, they're working in gig economy jobs where they could potentially be you know, working in the NHS or with the university, getting paid a lot more and also having decent terms and conditions, or they could establish a cooperative. Some in our South Asian community have established a food business. You know, I mean, there's taxes. I mean, these these things can actually, you know, really take root if you actually work with communities and work with the local businesses and unions and others in the city and the, the institutions. And that, I think, is where the scale comes. So for me, it's really exciting, but it is a slog. But what is really exciting for me is how this movement is spreading. You know, you go to Wales, they're establishing a regional cooperative bank there. They're looking at the public ownership of energy and construction. You've got Steve Rotherham, for example, similar ideas around community land trusts on uh, publicly owned land in Liverpool City region. Andy Burnham, what he's done with the buses is amazing. I mean, that's a really strong anchoring institution because it's under public control. But again, he's looking at how... You know, you can take profit out of social care and support, um, you know, cooperative solutions to the social care crisis. So these conversations were not there uh, 10 years ago, but they're pretty much everywhere now. And, you know, I want to make sure these ideas do come to scale. And obviously, if there is a change of government next year, which obviously I hope for, I think there's more opportunities there as well. Now, you mentioned two uh, Metro mayors there, Steve Rotherham and Andy Burnham, and obviously the uh, one of the bigger things to happen in Lancashire politics recently is a uh, devolution deal, which I think there's been wranglings about for several years, has finally been uh, signed, I think, at Lancaster Castle uh, a few days ago. Obviously, in Lancashire, you're not going to have a mayor like Andy Burnham. You're going to have a uh, county authority. I mean, do you think that will make any difference to the aims that you're trying to pursue? I guess it's it, the, the Lancashire devolution deal is more limited in scale isn't it than those in other parts of the country because you don't have a, a mayor do, do you think that will make any difference uh, at this moment in time no I think it's hugely disappointing uh, we've tried to engage for some some months and even years very constructively with the conservative led county council that have led on this we've been pushing for fair work charters in Preston we've been pushing for them to support our community bank and you know, we've been pushing for you know policies to maximise the number of affordable homes across the county. Uh, very disappointing because the danger is is that the shared prosperity money which we're spending on community wealth building Preston model policies, a lot of it, will actually then go to this combined authority and it's hugely unambitious and they're very, very arrogant in my opinion. The Conservative County Council, they're even trying to take powers off us larger districts. So again, it is a tough slog. What we've learnt is that this is a minor inconvenience and we'll just carry on the way that we're doing because we're working very strongly with you know, our institutions, our people in Preston. We're just going to carry on doing what we're doing. Um, they are really, in my opinion, letting the county down and they could have something much stronger. They could be arguing for a greater Manchester-style bus re-regulation, re- re- but they're not doing that. If they wanted the top powers, they could have gone for an elected mayor, but self-interest is coming in this because you don't want it to be a Labour mayor. So this is why, obviously, Philippa, as a Conservative leader, who's wanted to be the... Uh, you know, the the queen of the show across Lancashire, it seems. So it is very, very disappointing, but it won't stop us. We're just going to carry on doing what we're doing.
another very different but very powerful presentation at the This is the North convention was on the subject of the Black experience up north. Myself and a few other people in the audience were shown some very thought-provoking videos about the attitudes that Black people faced when they arrived in this country in the first half of the 20th century and the way that they were portrayed in popular culture. There was a particularly effective video, I thought, which was a list of some of the many uh, horribly offensive names that black people uh, are labelled with still in British society. Uh, the talk was given by Adrian Morell, Managing Director of the Windrush Initiatives, a community interest company based in Preston, created to tackle the disparities that black people experience in this country, uh, along with Dan Bryant, a project worker at the Windrush Initiatives. Uh, and I'm pleased that they're both here to talk to me now. Guys, it's nice to talk to you. And yeah, you too. Maybe Adrian, I'll start with you. So the talk was about the black experience uh, in the north of England. What made you want to tell this story? Because I, I know it's something that you don't just talk about in this session in, in Preston, but you, you, it's, it's something you do more widely, isn't it? I just think it was time for people to know the truth and not um, give a, a, a little house on the prairie version of it. Yeah. What 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 do you mean by that? So people have a because normally when people are doing stuff for Black History, say, or talking about racism, they don't actually they, they want to water it down a little bit. And I just thought if I'm gonna if I'm gonna talk about the Black experience and tell the truth about what it was like growing up, I'm not going to be pulling any punches. The uh, the talk that you gave, you you condensed it all down into under an hour, which is quite an achievement because I think you do a much longer version of it don't you that takes uh takes place over the course of a whole a whole day yeah and, and and what what context is that is that in so I start um at the beginning because I think that's where we should always start the early days of um black people being in Britain and how they were portrayed in the cinema and arriving in Britain after being invited here uh, after the second world war and show up to the, the present day of what Britain has been like on our journey. Just to give listeners a bit of an idea about, you know, the perspective that you're coming from on this, can you tell me a bit about your personal experiences growing up in, in, in the north of England and sort of how that's shaped your shaped your view on this? So growing up, so I'm a, a guy from the 60s, so growing up, it's, it's funny, back then there was more black people in Preston than, than there are now. And uh, we were closer who was closer as a, a community, who would always look out for each other. If you, as a kid, if you saw a black uh, adult, you'd say hello, hello to them, uh, just in case they knew your parents and, and go back and tell your parents that you, your child's got no manners because it didn't say hello to me this, this afternoon. So there was, a, there was a, a more of a unity than the, what there is uh, today. So the, the early days was, in terms of our community, it was quite close. Uh, but Preston itself, walking around Preston as a young kid, um, it was quite hostile. Um, I mean, I guess some of that comes through what sort of came through in the the, the video that you did, which uh, details the some of the many uh, offensive sort of insults that are doled out to black people. I mean, it, it, it's um, did, did you? To what extent have you been sort of talking to other other black people from the community in Preston or or more widely, just to get a sense of how 
uh, sort of th- their feelings on this. So when I did that um, that session, which is called Branded, I wanted to find out what names uh, black people were called when they were walking the streets. <clears throat> there was something like 90 odd different names. So I think I condensed it down to about 30. And I talked to them about the the feelings of receiving that kind of abuse, who they got that abuse from, uh, how old were they? So we're talking about from five upwards, uh, adults shouting those names that I suppose we can't repeat on here, but those names that um, you saw on the screen being shouted at you by adults as a kid was quite frightening. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, a lot of them are probably too offensive to even say, but I think there was one actually that I hadn't heard, which, which I was... probably can say. Uh, Chicken Chicken George. You, you so you explain, explaining the provenance of that one to me, weren't you? Where, where did that where did that where does that come from? So, because uh, I know you're a young man and you probably don't remember um, the seventies as much. There was a, a TV program called Roots. Uh, and Chicken George was a character in Roots. So when you was walking the streets, people would shout out Chicken George to you. I mean, that was that was a quite a pleasant one. I mean, that's not going to hurt you as much as some of the others, as you can imagine. But I suppose it all just contributes to a, a sort of more hostile uh, atmosphere for, for 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 black people in the in that context. And. Um, Dan, I'm, I'm interested in your uh, view on sort of how things have maybe changed over, over the years. I guess we like to think as a society that, um, you know, people from different backgrounds are able to more easily make it in life uh, than they were, you know, 40, 40 50 years ago. I mean, is, is would you say that's true based on your experiences and the work that you do at, at Windrush Initiatives? Um, things have definitely improved. Um, I can't say I've experienced the same sort of level of racism as um, Adrian might have experienced, or obviously uh, the older generation. Um, I think there's things that you people know that you, you kind of can't say now and you can't, you can't get away with, away with the same way. Um, so there's definitely, there are more opportunities now. Now, obviously, there's still a level of racism. Um, I think there always will be, but I think it's more... On the um, particularly in Preston, maybe the Northwest, it's more on the uh, sort of ignorance side of things rather than just um, like it was back in the sort of seventies and the sixties. And I know, like the whole essence of the Windrush initiatives is you're uh, looking at the disparity in things like economics and education and empowerment that are experienced by Black and mixed race people, and trying to tackle them. I mean. It's, it, I guess there's so many big subjects there, aren't there? Like, how do you go about tackling some of these quite uh, sort of entrenched issues? Before I answer that, it pleases me that um, Daniel's age group didn't face the same amount of racism that uh, his father and grandfather faced. That pleases me that things have got better for, for that generation, and so it should. Um, we've been here 76 years. Um, the, the way we tackle um, all those subjects that you just talked about is by having a, an, an honest conversation. Um, without 
sitting down by the table and having an honest conversation. We're not going to find out about each other. We're not going to learn from each other. If you looked at the early clips that we showed you back in the 50s and 60s, the reason why people were so ignorant is because they didn't actually sit down and talk to each other. Mm. So one of the things we do is go into the schools and colleges and universities and, and talk to students about um, what it's really like out there. That's really interesting. And what kind of reaction do you generally do you generally get? Well, it, it depends. Uh, the the youngsters. Um, so we go into the primary schools. So we talk to ten year olds, and they don't understand it. They don't understand racism. They don't understand why you would treat somebody different just because because the colour's different. They they just don't get it, and that part pleases me. Because, you know, I've got um, grandchildren at at primary school and um, I did my granddaughter's class a few weeks ago. And the the funny thing is, um, there was a ginger kid stood up and said, I understand what uh, black people are going through because I'm ginger and I get bullied all the time. And I said to her, God, this is amazing because... When I was at primary school in the 60s, there was a ginger kid who was more angry than I was at the time because he was always getting picked on because he's ginger hair. But this guy was so bloody tough, nobody bothered him. He just used to sit on his own because he was angry all the time. And I'm thinking, why do we always have to look at the differences instead of looking at our similarities? Why do we always have to pick pick on that person, that one person who's different to us? But this girl, she stood up and she said, she understood because um, she gets picked on because she's ginger and she's saying, hopefully, in a few years' time, people will stop. And, it, you know, it took... For her to stand up like that and say it, I thought it was brave. Mm. Um, and I just thought, why Why after all these years later? But that's we're human beings, aren't we? We're always looking for somebody to, to look down on, I guess. You're obviously the essence of what you do is that you want to start a conversation, like you say, and get people talking about these issues. I mean, do you think it's the case that there's not enough conversations like that being had more widely? And maybe that's why there are still some tensions in some communities. Like people just don't, people from different racial groups just don't actually speak to each other face to face enough to understand where the where the other side is coming from. Yeah, I mean, even from my perspective, and I said, like, uh, I've not been subjected to the same level of racism as uh, as Adrian or Edivan, um the older generation. But um, I think it's just raising the conversation and uh, raising more awareness. People feel uncomfortable by having these type of conversations because they can be quite confrontational, uh, depending on who you speak to and, again, what they've sort of experienced as well. Um, so it is difficult to have these conversations, but the more that we have them, the more things improve, and I think we're steadily getting there. But there's still, we still got there's still, um, yeah, there's still some distance to be covered there. Yeah, that's a good that's a good answer from Daniel. And the, and the other thing is, I remember um, talking to my Asian friends, and I read in the News of the World. Uh, that's how long ago it is. I read in the News of the World that um, Muslims don't want to celebrate Christmas. So I phoned up my friend Naz and I said, what the hell's wrong with you guys now? Why why can't we celebrate Christmas? And he says, where have you, where have you heard this? I said, in the news of the world. And he said, well, stop reading the news of the world. 
because we don't, we're, we're glad that you celebrate Christmas. So we listen to all the little stories that people plant in our heads. We go away with it and then we pass it on. But we don't, we don't realize, we don't seem to ask whether it's true or not. I mean, mm. more people ask now than they did in the past, but we just go with it. Yeah, I agree with that. And even in uh, current times, again, as you, you're seeing more fake news, like it's hard to sort of um, distinguish what's real and what's what's fake, especially with social media. Um, there's a lot of views on there, but again, well, it's, it, it's not always true. Uh, it's not always the same. Like, well, you can't always confirm if that's what people actually think or feel. Uh, so it's difficult with actually have sitting in front, well, sitting in front of us, another person like we are today, and having this conversation. So. That's why it's good to do that. Yeah, it's good to talk. That's the message we ought to be <laughs> yeah, uh, Adrian and Dan, thank you so much for talking to me today. Rob, thanks for having us. Appreciate it. So I've moved from the Masonic Hall in Preston to a different venue, the Larder Cafe Arts and Community Hub, for another highlight of the convention, which is the screening of the Unequal Pandemic a short film on how inequalities affected families during COVID. It's 25 minutes long, but there's really a lot in there which brings home fully the horrors that so many of us went through during the pandemic. There were families from the north of England speaking about finding out their loved ones had died alone in hospital without getting to say goodbye, and the fears of doctors and nurses who had to treat COVID patients with virtually no protection in the early months of the battle against the virus. But I think the message the film really aims to get over is just about how the pandemic was not the same for everyone and it hit much harder in many parts of northern England and it's really quite timely as we've been hearing in the last few days at the COVID-19 official inquiry from the people who made the decisions at the heart of government. So I'm really pleased to speak to Debbie Abrahams, Labour MP for Oldham East and Saddleworth, who is one of the people who made the film. Debbie, it's nice to talk to you. And nice to talk to you as well. Thank you so much for inviting me on. No worries. So what inspired you to make this particular film in this particular way? So um, many people won't know that I was a public health consultant before I became an MP. and My focus was on um, health inequalities. And the more that you understand about health inequalities, the more you realise that they relate to socioeconomic inequalities. It's not, as people often say, it's not about the NHS. It is about, uh, as I say, the inequalities and in our social uh, and economic circumstance. Um, and when the terms of reference originally came out for the COVID inquiry, I was, I was conscious that it, um, the inequalities aspect, which I saw was massive um, during, during the pandemic, um, wouldn't get the attention that it deserved. Um, so at that stage, I thought, well, how, what's the best sort of way that we might present this, in a, not only to the inquiry, but to, uh, to the public at large? Because I still think that there is, even though we've known for decades, the key drivers of uh, inequalities, um, we, there's still not sort of a common understanding about uh, about that. So it, it was it was that really that um, uh, that prompted me to um, put together a, a proposal, and and then I um, got uh, got in touch with um, what was Phil Webb. Um, 
and then Lord Guy from Good Guys um, Productions, who were the producer and the um, director. Um, and and we we put together um, uh, the the film. I mean, that sounds very concise, but it was <laughs> so much to uh, to actually organise. I wanted it to be focused on people, so actually identifying who um, we should have on and include was was quite a um, was quite a, an interesting feat. I wanted it to be evidence based as well. I think it's so important. Um, that not only do we have the academic evidence, which revealed overwhelmingly um, that the um, that there was a very different experience, both who and where was affected by um, by COVID, and that we needed to have that, but also that the personal stories. Um, so we're very grateful um, to um, the COVID uh, bereaved families group who, who and, and all the members who responded to uh, to us. Um, it was incredibly difficult to identify just exactly to, to have on the film because there were some heartrending stories. There, there really were. Um, but but that, that was that's behind it, Roy. That's that's how uh, I thought we could do it. Yeah. And you, yeah, you talk about the emotional stories and really like listening to some of the people talking about their losing their loved ones and how they found out about it is really quite heartrending to watch but also there is the as you say the evidence base and you've got uh, I know Kate Arden who is one of a senior public health director in Greater Manchester was heavily involved in the project and you've got Michael Marmot who is obviously a very well-known uh, academic who's written loads of very authoritative studies about uh, the links between sort of public health and inequality so it has got that sort of uh that uh that heavyweight sort of status about it so but i guess the message one of the things that came across to me was not just uh how things went after the pandemic had started but the impact of cuts that had taken place for the years before the pandemic to public health and public services and you know on the northern agenda we've done loads of stuff about how uh, you know the North has been disproportionately hit by public service uh, public service cuts of various times. I mean that was really quite a big factor, wasn't it, about how different places experienced the pandemic. So this what what happened was that COVID just exposed and amplified the existing health inequalities that we had. That you know academics like. Um, Michael Marmot, but Claire Bamber as well, who's done some fantastic work as part of the sort of Northern Science Alliance uh, team uh, with Kate Pickett, um, uh, David Taylor Robinson, some excellent academics to, to show exactly how the North, for example, has, has been affected. But there are also specific groups, um, even uh, across the country, who are more likely to be uh, disadvantaged. Um, so, uh, and this was what it was trying to do. And as you rightly say about the cuts that have ex been experienced, we know um, that um, areas like mine in Alderman, uh, Eastern Saddleworth, um, and other metropolitan areas, the North as a whole has has had um, regressive and disproportionate cuts uh, in our public services than other parts of of England, and that that had a, a knock on impact in terms of. Uh, how we were able to respond to the pandemic um, and the consequences for our for our constituents, for our citizens. 
and it's been kind of interesting watching this uh, this film and then comparing it to the kind of things that are being brought up at the COVID inquiry. Uh, I mean, in the last few days, obviously, we've had uh, the two Metro mayors of Greater Manchester and Liverpool City region giving evidence about how their views were kind of ignored by uh, central government when you know when restrictions were being imposed and the levels of financial support that were being offered were being decided by central government uh you know greater manchester and liverpool city region were making their particular case and it and it wasn't being listened to so i'm 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 just sort of uh, interested in your view on the covid inquiry itself you said you were you know had had some concerns about the way it had you know, the terms of reference and whether the right topics were being looked at. Do, do you think that the things that you've uncovered in your documentary, are, are they, is is the inquiry getting at those in, in the right way? Are we, are we, are we going to learn the right lessons from this, do you think, given the way the inquiry is being conducted? Certainly the evidence is being made available in terms of the, both the witnesses. So both Claire and uh, Michael were at the inquiry in, um, in June. Uh, David um, provided an excellent um, witness statement um, in, uh, in, in October uh, around inequalities for children. Um, but a lot will depend, be dependent on how that is assimilated and um, analysed and how it is is taken on board by the inquiry. Um, so that analysis will be interesting to see how how they they do. Um, it's quite clear to other, as I say, former public health consultants and academics. So it's quite clear to uh, to us as a profession uh, what's coming out of it. Um, the political aspect of it um, is, is slightly is slightly different, but in terms of the evidence that is being provided to the inquiry, it, it is there. Um, so uh, I, I look forward to to reading um, uh, to reading the the report when it it does come out. And finally, what are your hopes for the film going forward? I think you'd like to, uh, you know, you're, you're open to potentially making it longer, aren't you? And maybe getting, you, you'd like to get it in front of as many people as possible? Absolutely. As, as I said right at the beginning, you know, I, there is a, a, a misunderstanding in terms of what health inequalities are. And I think it, people will be rightly um quite angry in terms of of the impact that political decisions it's not inevitable that we have these inequalities it's not inevitable that we have the level of of poverty and destitution in our country these are political decisions um that that are influencing it and and at a regional level particular groups that are affected um you know different decisions could be made and I, i would hope that People will feel as strongly as as, um, uh, as I do, and, and so many of my friends uh, and colleagues really to, to 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 want to do something about that. But also that you know it will influence decision making, um, which which is what it was designed to do. Debbie Abrahams, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Rob. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. 
it's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you.